from the seventh chapter of the book of Luke. I'm reading and beginning of verse 31. And I want to talk about this parable. It's found in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, beginning of verse 31. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This parable, like all the other parables, has so many themes. I'm tempted to preach on the boundless hope of God. For he walked among the outcasts and the social wrecks of his time, and he saw these infinite possibilities in every soul. He saw no incurables, no hopeless cases. He saw in everybody this divine potential and possibility, what Fanny Crosby saw and wrote in a hymn we sang, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Or you might be tempted to take the phrase, he came eating and drinking, and talk about the fact that Jesus had the same appetites and hungers and desires that we all possess, and yet he held those appetites and desires in rigid control, and he dedicated them to a greater purpose and plan. And, and you might talk about the fact that, that he is a model of self-control for every one of us. You might take that phrase, he came eating and drinking, and say that it refers to a, it is a reverent reference to the incarnation, to the fact that God manifested himself in human flesh and experienced everything in life that you and I experience. He hallowed the common things. He hallowed infancy as he lay as an infant in the arms of his mother. He hallowed childhood as he lived in obedience to his parents. He hallowed youth in those silent years and unnoticed service in Nazareth. And he hallowed all of life and every experience by experiencing it. He made love sacred because he loved. And he sanctified tears because he wept. And he made life worship, or should be worship, because he passed through it. And he ennobled death and sanctified it, having died. Or one might choose the phrase they said of him in, in derision. He is a friend of sinners, a friend of the riffraff, the tax gatherers. And you might talk about the fact that God 
in Jesus Christ has this intimate friendship and fellowship with those who believe Him and trust Him. That the highest purity is no repellent to sinners and that gross sin does not shut Him out. There is no minimizing of sin. It's just that these people understood that He loved them like they were and they wanted to be in His fellowship and in His presence. Margaret Clarkson has a great book entitled Grace Grows Best in Winter in which she describes the relationship of fellowship, this friendship that, that one should have with Jesus Christ which is, which is more than a nodding acquaintance. And this is what she says. The companionship of Jesus Christ is no myth. He's the first person I speak to in the morning and the last one at night. Many days He's the only one with whom I talk all day. I try not to have too many days of such isolation, but sometimes they're inevitable. These hours, however, are usually very happy. We don't talk, we, we, we don't talk only of spiritual things, He and I, although that's part of each day's fellowship. We keep up a running fellowship all day long. Whatever I may be doing, I'm constantly needing His help. With this undertaking or that habit or this attitude, and He's always available. He helps me with such particulars as reminding me that I left the iron on or that I should run an errand or make a phone call or by jogging my memory where I set my glasses down. Hadn't thought that might help me, but could use that. Together we enjoy the beautiful things with which He has filled my life. Fine music, the soft feel of a furry body of a pet, the soft amber evening sky, the friendliness of a crackling fire in, 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 at autumn, in, on an autumn night. My heart is constantly reaching up to Him in praise and gratitude. He fills it with Himself. This relationship that I have with Jesus didn't come easy. I've had hours of loneliness, but in so much as I give myself to Him, He gives Himself to me. I don't know all the answers of human loneliness, but I do know one. The daily, hourly, moment-by-moment practice of the presence of Jesus Christ. I want to preach on that this morning, but being an expositor, I have to stay with the meaning of this parable. And the manner of this, this message, the meaning of this parable is this that Jesus wants to indicate the nature and the quality of those who refuse to listen to Him and John the Baptist. And He likens them to children playing in a marketplace. You have one group over here and they pipe the music and they say, we, we, we've sung the music, now let's play wedding. And, 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 and this group over here refuses to dance. And this group over here, they sing their funeral dirges and they go through their funeral laments and they say to this group, let's play funeral and this group refuses to weep. And like these children playing in the marketplace, here comes John the Baptist and he's preaching his message of repentance and he's living an ascetic lifestyle and they say he's possessed of a demon. And here comes Jesus and he's coming joyously and happily, and he's preaching his gospel of good news. And they say that he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners, and they're like children. They don't know what they want, and they're never satisfied with whatever is offered to them. And he calls them childish. 
Now there's a difference between being childlike and childish. Being childlike is a prerequisite for being in the kingdom. Jesus said, unless everyone is converted and becomes like a little child, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But he condemns childishness in people. So what are the characteristics and the qualities of that childishness that Jesus condemned in the people who refused to listen to him? First of all, there is shallowness. Children have a difficulty in discerning the real values of things, the things that are really important. And so John the Baptist and Jesus both were vital to the ministry of God, to the work of redemption in the world. But John came preaching repentance, and Jesus came announcing the gospel of good news. And in their shallow, capricious instincts the instincts of their, of their time, they didn't discover, they didn't realize their real value. So they played their religious games like children in the marketplace, totally oblivious to the value of the one who stood in their midst. Anthony Campolo tells about growing up in, uh, in the city of Philadelphia and he and his, some of his friends uh, decided on a dare that they would hang out late at night in a department store and hide out so that, that when they locked up they'd be on the inside not to steal anything but to change the price tags. So when the store was closed they went through the he's written a book called Who Changed the Price Tags it, it, they went through the store and they changed the price tags on everything. Real little jokes you know something, little, something to do when you're in college and that kind of stuff. So th- the next morning you probably could buy a suit of clothes for five bucks and pay $150 for a pair of socks. I mean, somebody got some real, real bargains. And the uh, irony of the whole thing was that it, it was like hours before they discovered what had happened. Now you say, now that couldn't be, that, that's hard to believe. No, no, it didn't really. For you and I live in a culture that's so inundated with a distorted sense of values. We have sold out the things most precious for pennies while cheap smut goes for a million bucks. And we live in a culture that has changed the price tags. You may not realize it, but we have. And we live in a culture where the things that really count, like human life has been devalued and we've sold out those things that are most valuable and most precious for a mess of pottage and a piece of raw meat. And there's a New Testament illustration of it. Some men surrounding the cross gambling and they're getting ready to roll the dice and one of them says, this for his sandals, come on boxcars, be good to me baby. And while they're rolling their dice, gambling for his his garment and his sandals that are worthless, he's hanging on a cross right above them, and they're oblivious to his value. And I wonder how he what he thought as he looked past his bleeding feet at people who are gambling away the things that matter most for a cheap roll of the dice. And it was in 842 A.D. that Charlemagne died. 
And he asked in his last request that he be placed in a tomb seated on a throne with his crown on his head, his scepter in his hand, his robe on his back, on his shoulders, and a book in his lap. Two hundred years later, when Othello became emperor, he decided to open the tomb to see if they had carried out his wishes. Things were different. He was bent over on the throne. His crown was tottering on the edge of his skull. His scepter had fallen on the floor. His, His robe had been eaten by moths. But on his bones, the bones of his thighs, the book was still open as he had planned it, and a bony finger was still pointing at the place he had planned it. What does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? I'm reading the book by Cal Thomas, that famous columnist, and hot, the hot potato on the, uh, on the uh, talk show scene almost as popular as Rush. And Cal Thomas has a book, I'm halfway through the book, it's frightening to read it. The title of the book is The Things That Matter Most. And he makes a point that we're living in a culture that has taken those things that are most precious and has sacrificed them for the want of money and power and status. Shallowness. And then there's selfishness. This, if you don't sing my song and play my tune, I'm going to take my toys and go home, is a vital part of what it means to be a child. For children are difficult to please if they don't get their way. Some are nodding. Um... The other day I was in Walmart getting my dog food and for Precious the Killer Dog. And, and, and I heard this round on the other side of, of, of the counter, I heard this blood-curdling scream. It sounded like somebody was having an amputation without means of, of uh, anesthetic. And I went around the, the, the counter and I see this little kid about six years old and he's doing an impersonation of Lou Gaynor's triple somersault backward half gainer right on the floor. I mean, he was kicking. It was amazing. And he was obviously wanting something on the shelf his mother wouldn't let him have. And so she said, now, well, you can't have that. You don't need that. And she started to walk off. He... He elevated the volume a decibel. I mean, it was like, it was like devastating. And she comes back and she says, Honey, if you'll straighten up, we'll stop on the way home and get an ice cream. That didn't work. So finally, she gave him what he wanted immediately. It was, tears were gone. And was, the guy was well. I mean, it was a miracle right there. You know. it's, it's what I call the Scotty Pippin syndrome. Now, you know, Scotty Pippen, he hit ball for the NBA Chicago Bulls, and in the playoffs last year against the Knicks, at the end of the game, five seconds, ten seconds left, and they call timeout, two points behind, one point, whatever, and, and, and Phil Jackson, his coach, go there and designed the play that would win the ball game. Didn't include Scotty Pippen. 
He's a, he's a hero of the team. He's the main player. But the, the play was designed to go to somebody else. So when the buzzer rang and they started back out on the court, he just sat there. And he told his coach, he said, you know, if, if I, I guess he told him this. By sitting there, he did. If you don't design everything so that I can be a hero, I just won't play. Sound like anybody you know? Now, I'm not talking about playing basketball. Watch this. I'm talking about this kind of attitude and feeling that says that if things don't go my way, I'm going to close the door and walk away, and I'm out of here. And so here comes, whether it's with God or others, so here comes John preaching repentance. Here comes Jesus preaching joy. And they didn't like either one. They said, if you don't play my tune, sing my song, you're out of here. It's our way or the highway. And behind all of it is this basic thread or core of selfishness that pervades us all. A while back, some... A, a large group of young men who are the children of the baby boomers. We call them the upwardly mobile. We call them yuppies. They were asked question like, what is the most important thing in life? This was their answer. They believe that a successful life means financial independence and that the best way to gain financial independence is to be the top at the top of a major corporation, too. They believe in themselves. There's no humble talk among them. Three, they believe in the corporate world. They are sure that the corporations they would lead are the most worthwhile institutions in the world, even more important than the church or the family. Four, they view as a drag on success any relationship that slows their ascent up the corporate ladder. Marriage is acceptable only if it does not interfere with their aspirations. And children, they never give a thought to having children. Five, loyalty is not high on the list. It's, it's not that I'm going to be loyal to anything or anybody except that which will promote my self-interest. And they're the antithesis of everything that Jesus taught in Matthew 5. He taught in Matthew 5 that the happy people are the people who are poor, having responded to the needs of others. Not so, says the upwardly mobile. The happy people are those who have gained financial independence for themselves. Jesus said that the happiest people are the people who feel the hurts of humanity. Not so, they say. Happy people disregard what hurts others and think only of themselves. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, happy people are the meek. They say, foolishness. The happy people are the go-getters, the ladder climbers, those who succeed in, 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 in their goals of life. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. The upwardly mobile say, that's terribly naive, get a life. And we have entered an era... It's what Chuck Colson calls the looter's ethic. The age of the looter's ethic. Now let me tell you what Chuck Colson is talking about. He said that there, is, there seems to be in the mind of many of us this, this desire to get regardless of who it hurts 
because I have a right to it. He said, one day I was watching television and I was watching the riots in Los Angeles and I saw people breaking into other people's property saying, I've got a right to that if I can get it because I've never had it before. And Chuck Colson says, there seems to be a kind of an attitude that says, I can get all I can get, but I have a right to it. Solzhenitsyn says that living with this attitude of getting what is mine, getting all I can get because I have a right to it, is like breathing with one lung, Solzhenitsyn says. There is another lung, it's called duty. And so Colson says, in this age of the looter's ethic, you don't believe that, where you been? And you have Ivan Bosky with using insider trading to rip off the public. And you have military leaders, it's not uncommon, who sell their honor for money or sex. And you have government officials skimming millions off the HUD programs designed for the poor. And you have hucksters in pulpits like this one pushing their own fiefdoms. And you have the SNL scandal that literally emptied the treasury of $150 billion. And you have a, 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 a nation that is poised at its most prosperous time and has tripled its national debt in the, in the trillions of figures. Now, I'm being very simple. I have to be very simple because I'm very simple. But I think that this feeling of selfishness this getting what is mine, I have a right to what is yours if I can get it, has hurt most of all family values. Did you know that every child of all the children who were born in 1980 and since, only 39% of them will live with both parents till they graduate from school, and 4,000 abortions are performed in this country every day since Roe versus Wade, 30 million, which is more than all the wars of history combined. We are like children saying, I want mine now, regardless of who it hurts. Third, there is short-sightedness. Children have a way, a difficulty, have difficulty in taking the longer look because children are bracketed by the power of the immediate. It's what matters, what matters most is right now, really, with, 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 with kids. And, and that was true of the religious leaders because what they wanted was to protect their power and position in the present. They weren't thinking about the future. And that's what Jesus meant in the last verse when he says that wisdom will be vindicated. That what he meant by that was that in time, in, in time, those things that he's talked about and those things he's come to represent will be vindicated, but it'll take time for it to happen. It, time vindicates wisdom, he said. What he's saying was, is that you have to consider when you make your decisions the broader look, the longer look. And that's difficult to do. 
It feels good right now. Why shouldn't I? It seems good now. Why not? See. But the problem is, what will this decision I make today, how will it affect tomorrow? And what will it, what will it do to the tomorrows of my life? And what are the consequences of these decisions? Kids, we have to make those kind of uh, evaluations. If I choose this, if I go this way, what are the consequences in the long term? See? Sure, smoking dope sounds like fun. What are the consequences of that? Sure, sexual freedoms are wonderful. But what are the results of that? I mean, I like the dance, but when the party's over, can I pay the fiddler? I mean, sooner or later we have to pay the fiddler. That's an old Knox County term. That I saw it right mm, over your head. <laughs> what I'm saying is that you, you, somebody has to pay the tab. And the tab is the bottom line that's drawn, which tabulates the result of the decision I make in the present. And so the author of the book of Ecclesiastes said it like this. Watch this. He said, Rejoice, O young man, in the days of your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant in the days of young manhood, and follow the impulse of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet remember, O man, that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Well, let me tell you what he was saying. If it feels good, do it, man. If it looks good, go for it. But remember that one day you stand in an accounting mode before the throne of God to answer for it. And that has to be considered. Fifty men, 95 years of age, I was not asked to participate in this poll. Fifty men... 95 years of age were asked, what, what would you do if you had it to do all over? How would, what would you change? This is what they said. We would reflect more. We would risk more. And we would do those things that will live after we're gone. I'm intrigued by the latter. It's like the black preacher who got up on the day that he was honoring the graduating seniors and said this, when you were born, you were the only one crying, everybody else was happy. When you die, will you be the only one happy and everybody else crying? The answer to that question depends on whether you go for the titles or the testimonies. When they lay you in the grave, will somebody stand and give all the titles that you have achieved or will they talk about all the good things you did for them? Will they talk about, will they read from a column in the newspaper of all the achievements that you have earned or will they stand there sobbing, saying, giving testimony of what a wonderful friend you were and how they would miss you for the rest of their life? The answer to that, he said, depends on whether you go for the titles or the testimony. Now, there's nothing wrong with test titles, he said. Titles are good to have, but when it comes to a choice between titles and testimonies, go for the testimonies. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying when it comes down to a matter of decision, you need to make your decision on the basis of what's going to happen, how's it going to affect the world even after you're gone. Heavy question. Go for the testimonies and do those things that are done in secret, those things that are insignificant, and do those things that will outlive you. I don't know what goes on on Sunday morning in Sunday school. Probably a good thing I don't. <laughs> but I, I heard it in a Sunday school class one morning. May have been up here. I don't know. May have been one third grade class or somewhere. The teacher gave the kids an opportunity to decide what games they wanted to play. One of them said, let's play church. And so they decided they'd play church. They, they got ushers. They got... Um, an offering plate. I mean, you can't have church without that. I mean, they got, they got, a, they got an announcer. They got Ed, <laughs> a little Ed, to make announcements, reading from the back of the bulletin. They got, they got a preacher, and they were going to play church. Well, after a little bit, one of them said, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's play Jesus. And he said, well, what's that? He said, well, you pick out somebody, and then what we do is we throw stuff at him and we spit on him and we say bad words about him. Well, the spitting didn't seem to, you know, that, that worked, but they did. They rolled up pieces of paper, made stones out of it, and they chose somebody in the class and they started talking, saying bad things about him and throwing, you know, these paper stones at him. And after a little bit, they, they, they rotated. They got another one. And after about the third one, the third one said, that too. The third one said, I don't like this game. Let's go back to playing church. Now I have two questions for me for you. Listen to me. Question number one, are you childlike or childish? Question number two, are you playing church? Our Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you'll help us today in our moment of invitation to confront the reality of the games we play. And in the reality of the games we play, make the choices of the things that really count the things that have the greatest impact upon others for the good, for the positive, and the things that live on after we're gone. And help us to know the difference between playing church and being like Jesus. For I pray in His name, in the early service this morning, someone came with this very thought. I have, I have played church most of my life. And I want to be like Jesus in every way. Pray for me. Maybe you need to make the same kind of commitment. 
Or maybe you need to come this morning, as some have come in days past, to say, I have never known, I, have not, I do not know what it means to be saved. But I want Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I'm tired of playing games with God. Or maybe you need to put your life in the fellowship or discipline of a church today. So while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.